Oiga, señor, we are federales. You know, the mountain police. If you're the police, where are your badges? Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week, we are starting out the 1948 nominees with a banger. Yeah. <laughs> the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, starring Humphrey Bogart, and wow, this movie. <laughs> yeah. I What I sort of kept thinking while I was watching it is that we have watched so many boring versions of this movie that in a weird way, on paper... The fact that act two of this is kind of the same character beat over and over and over again has been the bane of our existence. But like, everybody's so fascinating to watch. It's so well shot. This movie's a fucking banger. It's great. It's fantastic. And the fact that it involves people who sometimes we have not been totally on board with. Well, I don't know that that's true. That I would not have expected to make this movie, I guess, is the better description, is even more impressive because it's directed by John Huston, who did The Maltese Falcon. And despite the fact that those both have Humphrey Bogart in them, these movies could not be more different in scope, tone, setting, story. <laughs> It's just an excellent film. And in ways where I, like, God, I kind of struggle to talk about this movie besides just, like, go watch this movie. If you've not seen Treasure of the Sierra Madre, go see it. Okay, bye. End of podcast. <laughs> see you next week. Yeah. <laughs> Only because in my head, there's just plot beat after plot beat where I go, and this shouldn't work, but it does really well. Like... There's this really long introductory sequence that introduces us to Bogart's character, Fred C. Dobbs, who is a broke American in Mexico. And you really get into this dude's world for a while before we get to the meat of this story, which is going and trying to find gold and finding gold, um, where he... Gets hired by a labor contractor, but that guy turns out to be a scammer. And then they track the scammer down and beat the ever-loving hell out of him in a really amazingly shot sequence. Yeah. And then they have been listening to uh, this old gold digger who has struck it rich a couple of times and sort of talks about how there's some real downsides <laughs> to striking it rich because greed changes men. And I, I have to just cut you off for one second. I would say prospector more than gold digger. Fair. <laughs> that does have. I mean, a... he is digging for gold. Yeah, but yes. it has a slightly different connotation. Yeah. And I would also say, just very specifically, that this character is, in many ways, the opposite of what that connotation is, because he's very low key about going bust. <laughs> 
Yeah, he's extremely chill about it. Anyway, he goes through all of the ways greed changes men, and Humphrey Bogart is like, it won't change me in these specific ways that I will declare (laughs) with proper nouns and they will never come back to haunt me. But Bogart, Dobbs, Bogart's character, decides that, like, he's going to go strike it rich and teams up with the prospector and with, God, I always forget the name of the third guy, uh, Curtin. Yeah. Tim Holt uh, doing the Lord's work after not being all that good in Magnificent Ambersons. It's just... He's fantastic in this. Yeah. Possibly my favorite character, but also hard to say that with Walter Houston. I... And, yeah, I don't know. Everybody is so great in it, and the only reason Humphrey Bogart is not my favorite is because I don't like his character very much. Oh, no. Dobbs is a fucking nightmare. And what's interesting is that they set him up in a way where he's very sympathetic at the beginning, but you still have this feeling of, given the opportunity, this guy will take the bad choice. Yeah, and I think that is a little bit what leads to the feeling I'm talking about. How is this not a bad movie? The middle third of this is like an overlong Twilight Zone episode, because they go out on a mining expedition and they do in fact find this gigantic vein of gold in the Sierra Madre Mountains and then just for a long time it's just Dobbs taking back everything he said about how money won't change him and he will be chill about this and he will absolutely not become a greedy murderous asshole but it all works and it's all great I almost am alighting a lot of the stuff that goes on in here just because I'm like, go watch this movie. Like, I don't want to ruin all of the specifics of it for you because that's sort of where the meat of this thing actually is. But it is the same character beat over and over again. It's just the characters are really fascinating, so you like watching them. Eventually, the thing that breaks this pattern is Curtin goes into town to get some more supplies and ends up running into a guy who basically immediately figures out that they've found gold up in them their hills. Which they have a lot of. A lot. Oh, yeah. $150,000 worth of? In, God, and this is set in like the 20s, I think, or is 25, it? 1925. Yeah. So that's... I don't even know, but it's astronomical. They will be so wealthy. (laughs) So this guy follows them back to camp (laughs) and is also great, like every other character in this movie. And is just like, so the way I see it, you could shoot me, you could let me go, or you could make me your partner. Let me tell you why making me your partner would be the best of those options. (laughs) But they decide to shoot him anyway, because Dobbs is you know, greedy. Uh, But Curtin, interestingly, is the second one that goes for let's shoot him instead of giving him any of our money. Um, Which is interesting only because otherwise Curtin is very generous with this fantastic amount of wealth that he has gotten in the plot of the film. But before they can shoot the dude, a bunch of bandits show up. And this is where we get, we don't need no stinking badges, although that's not technically actually the line. What is it with 
Humphrey Bogart films and people misquoting the famous line from it all the time. Yeah, I don't get it. But And in this case, it's not even his line, but... Yeah, but they have an argument with the bandits that escalates into a shootout and they drive away the bandits, but the fourth guy, Cody, the guy that followed them to camp, has been killed. Then there's an absolutely great scene that again, should not work, where they find a letter on the dude's body and Curtin reads it out and it is the dude's wife being like, I hope this is the last time you go out to find treasure. I miss you so much. The real treasure is our love, but I hope you find it because you deserve it. Your luck deserves a change. And it actually works incredibly well because Tim Holt's performance of it is fantastic. And then Dobbs is like, well, let's search his body and take all his stuff. <laughs> yeah, it has that feeling of the not quite as heart wrenching because the whole film isn't about it. But it does have that feeling of, um... oh, shit, what was the movie? Oh, the, um, God. You know what I'm talking about. The Oxbow Incident. There, The Oxbow Incident, yeah. Nailed it. It does have that feeling of the Oxbow Incident letter reading at the very end, but faster, because we weren't that invested in this guy, and the whole movie wasn't about whether or not to hang this guy, but there is that feeling of like, oh, man. But to their credit, and I guess their relief, they didn't actually kill him. Right. The bandits did, so... Yeah. But between the bandits and Cody finding them and a bunch of other stuff, they kind of decide, like, well, let's get out of here while the getting's good. Let's take the ridiculous amount of money we've already mined out and not stick around longer, because if we do, we're likely to just lose everything we have. And decide to head back towards civilization... On their way back towards civilization, though, the old prospector, Howard, is called away to a local village by some villagers who are trying to figure out what to do about a little boy that fell in the river and won't wake up. And again, this is a thing where you're like, this is such a weird diversion. This shouldn't work. And it is so compelling to watch howard the old prospector nursed this kid back to life and the whole town watching it the villagers insist howard stick around to be honored for saving this kid and so howard leaves his stuff with dobbs and curtain and dobbs is immediately like god what a sucker i'm gonna take all of his stuff and run away and curtain's like um no no And Dobbs is like, well, then I'm going to go double crazy and I'm going to kill you. And Curtin's like, no, and ties him up, but falls asleep. And he grabs him and goes, ha ha, I told you I would double kill you and (laughs) shoots him, but doesn't actually kill Curtin. And Curtin crawls away in the night. He actually goes and checks on him a second time to make sure that he's dead. And Curtin doesn't move, which... It's not clear if that's because he figures out that that's what's going to happen or he just passed out from, you know, being shot. But it makes his whole thing in the morning so much more interesting, I think, that he went and checked. Yeah. He knows that he was dead. Yeah. (laughs) Or was he? This is where Bogart is doing a real powerhouse performance because, again, this is the part that just absolutely... 
I'm sorry, it's just like my one thing I keep saying over and over again about this movie, but like, the character is monologuing to himself. None of the things he's monologuing make any sense. Like, he is just a wreck, and Bogart is putting in work making that incredibly compelling. He's constantly changing his mind, and like, it reads as a fully realized person who is losing their mind. And not just a random sequence of events and a person doing whatever the plot decides they need to do, you know? Which, on paper, this very easily could be. Like, he checks when he doesn't move, but doesn't check when he does move, and then comes back to check to find out he's moved. Is, like, something we've seen in a lot of movies where I roll my eyes and go, like, oh, God, how much more of this movie is left? <laughs> Yeah, in this, his whole monologue is about whether or not he should bury him. Yeah. And it is so... I mean, I don't mean to overblow this at all. So if I am, please call me out on it. But honestly, it's got, like, Macbeth shades mm -hmm. in this monologue of debating whether or not to kill Duncan or, like, who would have thought the old man would have so much blood in him after they killed Duncan? Yeah, I think that the thing that makes it extremely Macbethy is that he has come up with this rationalization that Curtin was going to kill him, and it was self-defense. And the more he goes into his rationalization, the crazier he seems. Oh, yeah. Like, the more it's like, that makes no sense whatsoever, my man. You are talking nonsense. Yeah. Bogart is doing great. But Curtin has crawled away and has been found by members of the village that has taken Howard in and is honoring him. But meanwhile, Dobbs has decided to try and take all of the money and run, but gets caught by the bandits they were in a shootout with earlier. Goldhat, by the way, is the leader of the bandits, and I'm kind of obsessed with his name. It's a super duper great name. It's a super Dungeons and Dragons-y name. Yeah, yeah. He sounds less like a bandit and more like a dwarf, but whatever. That's fine. It works. Yeah, no, it works great. But they immediately see through Dobbs's attempts to say, like, my friends are coming, you shouldn't murder me, and give him shit for a while before cutting his head off. Although we don't actually see the decapitation, which is an interesting production note, because it does result in the one actively bad shot in the movie, which does feel like John Huston kind of throwing a temper tantrum, understandably, that this big beheading he shot got cut, because he just reuses a shot you've seen literally five seconds earlier. And you're like, wow, that's a really weird and bad cut. And it's him going, yeah, the studio made me. The movie is worse now. Thanks a lot. See, I didn't even realize that it was a decapitation. Yeah, that is... Because it is not well done. It is one of two great production stories that have absolutely fantastic Bogart quotes. Because that one ends with Warner Brothers publicity department released a statement that Humphrey Bogart was, quote, disappointed the scene couldn't be shown in all its graphic glory. Bogart's reaction was, quote, what's wrong with showing a guy getting his head cut off? Which is just a fantastic <laughs> quote. As long as it's fiction, what is wrong with it? I don't want to see an actual dude get his head chopped off, but... It's just, I can't do a good Bogart impression. It's just imagining Humphrey Bogart saying that. Yeah. Just really casually. 
is deeply amusing to me. The other deeply amusing Bogart quote is after he got cast as Dobbs, he apparently ran into a critic outside of a club in New York and went, wait till you see me in my next picture. I play the worst shit you ever saw. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just, again, accurate. Yeah, absolutely. No question. Yeah, so he gets his head cut off. He does. And the bandits try and take all of their stuff, but believe the gold is just sand, and so just empty it out into the desert. But then they try to sell the burros. Their whole idea is that really the only thing of any value are the burros and the skins on them under the saddles and things. Yeah. Meanwhile, dumping out $150,000 worth of gold dust. Because they're trying to sell the burros in town and they're wanted men, they're immediately found by the federales and uh, shot, executed. Well, also the donkeys are branded and this little boy finds the brand and then runs to tell somebody. Right. It's interesting because this film, a lot of it is in Spanish. Yeah. I wouldn't say half, but I would say 25% of this film is in Spanish. There are no subtitles and no translation, and yet you always know what's going on, which I think is really fucking cool. (laughs) And an achievement. Absolutely. Part of that is that Howard, the prospector, sort of acts as a translator for Dobbs and Curtin, but as a result also sort of acts as a translator for the audience. And only when necessary. Right. There's a lot of times where his translation is, oh, they're saying that X, Y, and Z thing. So it's the gist of it. It's what needs to be understood after there's a back and forth conversation. Yeah. And I think that that's very grounding for me as an audience member who doesn't speak Spanish to be in that reality. You know, anytime that you're with somebody who is bilingual and they're doing the translation for you, it's not like they just word for word translate it back to you unless you're at the UN or something. (laughs) It also mirrors the feeling of being in a foreign country that speaks a language you do not speak, where translation only goes exactly as far as it needs to. You know, they're not trying to fucking teach you the language. Right. They're just trying to get the meaning across. And then once the meaning is across, they're like, okay, well, great. That communication is over now. Yeah. It's great. But Howard and Curtin figure out what has happened and then go to where Dobbs got caught to try and find the rest of the goods because they figure out that they thought these bags of gold were just weighing down the skins so that we could sell the skins for more and they go and try and find it and there's a gigantic dust storm (laughs) that was apparently made by borrowed jet engines in real life yeah they spent a lot of money on this movie (laughs) yes and it doesn't not look like it but i also get where jack warner is like what the hell are you doing every week sending notes like stop spending money my god please this is supposed to be three guys in the desert it was why is this not cheap because you have to put three guys in the desert (laughs) right on location (laughs) yes but that's kind of a new thing and so hollywood is sort of surprised that costs money Anyway, they go out and this gigantic dust storm has blown away all of the gold dust and they just start laughing uproariously at the grand cosmic joke of how all of this was essentially for nothing. All of it, all of it. That's also the point of the bandits getting caught and getting killed is just like, oh God, all of this was just 
the pieces getting shuffled on the board. Nobody got anything. But it does seem like Curtin has actually embraced this, well, so it goes, <laughs> attitude, which is cool. Right. And in doing that has found a kind of transcendence and freedom because Howard is going to go back to the village that is worshipping him as a god, basically, which is a very weird energy. But it seems like a good deal for him. Um, he's their medicine man now, and they just kind of keep hoisting new honorifics on him. And Curtin decides to go back to the U.S., sell their supplies and stuff for a decent amount of money, and track down the widow of the guy that died, the fourth guy, and give her the note and tell her what happened to her husband. And then they just ride off, and as they ride off... You see that one of the bags of gold is just sitting there on the ground, and they've missed it. You don't get the sense of, like, if only they looked a little harder. You get the sense of, like, oh no, they're in on the joke now. They understand that that's a monkey's paw if they did, in fact, find it. Then the movie ends. Yeah, and it's not exactly anticlimactic, which it kind of sounds like in the description, it feels like the whole movie sort of tricks you that you start out thinking that this is going to be a movie that is about Humphrey Bogart's character. And then it kind of turns into being about Curtin's evolution as a person and how all of this wild shit that has happened to him has taken him from being somebody who was willing to shoot another guy so as not to share the money with him to somebody who can genuinely laugh at the joke of having put in nearly a year's worth of effort and almost dying to get this money, and it just evaporated instantly. And I think that that turnabout is so elegantly done that you don't realize that it is happening until it has happened to you. <laughs> Which is really a macro review of the entire movie's micro incidents. I absolutely think that that is just sort of the entire movie. Oh, this sounds like not a lot happens in this movie, right? Like a couple of guys go out into the desert. They're consumed by greed. One of them is killed by it and the other two decide greed is bad and go off. And yet, boy, this movie rolls. Yeah, I mean, I would say actually a shitload of stuff happens in this movie. It just doesn't seem to necessarily be building up to anything specific. Right. And part of the entire point of the movie is that none of that stuff matters, right? Right. That it's all a series of incidents that when you are grounded in the material in that way, in trying to get physical wealth... It all has everything drained out of it into being just this series of kind of transactional events mm -hmm. of who's getting one over on who. And it is only by escaping that that you find any kind of transcendence. And it is a great movie because it is not nearly as pretentious as I just was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it is getting at that basic idea. It is so reductive to say this is a movie about how greed is bad, because it is, but it's such a well-observed movie about why greed is bad, because it isn't just, it makes you a dick, though it does, 
but it is also just ultimately hollow and empty and leaves you open for the next dick that wants your stuff coming along with a gun. And also that the transcendence of greed is remarkably freeing, I think is the other side of that. Because, like, everyone knows that greed is bad, but this demonstrates what happens when you actually can fully let go of it, which you don't usually see. Usually it's like, greed is bad, and then someone gets punished for being greedy, end of story. Yeah. And this shows both, which is, I think, what's unusual about it. It also manages to sidestep a number of other cliches, despite being sort of set up to fall into them. For instance, Howard, the old prospector, is the Mary Sue joke made flesh, only he's an old guy instead of a 20-year-old girl? Because there is almost nothing this guy does not know how to do. Yeah. He is essentially a doctor. <laughs> yeah. And, like, better than most 1925 doctors would be. <laughs> uh, you know, he treats Curtin's gunshot wound, and Curtin seems to be just perfectly fine and not having any trouble and not even really in any pain. <laughs> Which, you know, might be more a problem with how the movie thinks, and many movies think, a gunshot wound recovery goes. <laughs> but, you know, he wakes up this kid, and he knows medicine in a way that is both entirely holistic and from the land, and is extremely effective. Yeah. He knows all about different types of gold, and he knows how to find... The gold that essentially looks like sand yeah. instead of the more shiny stuff that prospectors who don't know what they're doing are looking for. He's an absolutely incredible shot. At one point, he shoots a pocket watch that someone is swinging on a chain in a circle, and he shoots it dead on. <laughs> yeah. And yet... I'm not like, no way. There's no way that this guy can do all of this because he's just so humble about it. He's kind of a bodhisattva. <laughs> like, he's just an enlightened being. <laughs> he is. And I think the thing that makes Walter Houston's performance so good, and he does win the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for this, and fucking good. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Is that you do get that sense of there is kind of a, like wholly complete person here but you do also get the sense this dude's just lived a life like from the very first scene you get that he's just done all of this before the reason he is good at all of this stuff is that this is the like 10th time he's been accosted by bandits right that is something you have to bring to the performance because he does say hey i've been mining for gold for a long time in that first scene but it is in the performance that you connect that to how he knows about all of this stuff, not just prospecting, but, you know, shooting people, treating people who have been shot. All of this stuff could feel like just this random skill set of convenience that he has. And instead, it feels like, oh, yeah, no, of course he learned how to do that from being a prospector for 40 years or whatever. Like, of course, he knows all of this stuff. Right. I think there is so much in the small details like that. Same with Tim Holt's performance, where he really makes, I was going to say makes a meal, but that has such a negative connotation. But he finds so much stuff in such small little moments. Like, any time that Curtin, 
on paper, Curtin is almost always this sort of saintly foil to Dobbs. Like, he always says the right thing, goes, hey, is this going to go bad when something goes bad? Well, except for that time that he is down to shoot the guy. <laughs> right. And there's like two or three other examples. And what I'm saying is there's a very small portion of the film in terms of time where he doesn't fall into that cliched role of the good one. This is a guy who can be swayed by the devil on his shoulder, too. It is actually a struggle and a decision to be a good person, not just the saintly figure that is here to show you that Dobbs is bad, which I feel like that character could very easily be, even despite that he goes along with shooting a guy. And really actively says, let's shoot a guy. Yes. I think the strange thing, I, I don't know. I am interested to get to rating this movie because I'm kind of interested what we say. Because I don't know if I want to give this a 10. I mean, 100% watch this movie. See, I do want to give this a 10 because I think that it is well-directed. It's interesting. It tells a story that is unusual while being grounded in narrative tropes, it manages to subvert them a number of times. The acting is top to bottom spectacular. It is over the top and kitschy when it needs to be, like in the case of when Goldhat and his gang initially confront them with the we don't need to show you no stinking badges bit. Yeah. And then really fucking terrifying when they're like, no, nah, we're just going to cut your head off and steal all your shit. Bye. I think all of the characters, all of the main characters are very complex and well-rounded. Even Humphrey Bogart's character, who ends up being a homicidal piece of shit, is somebody that we watch transform into that. The people of Mexico are not portrayed as one particular stereotype of people, <laughs> which is a first, I think, that we've ever seen. You know, there are assholes, there are good people, there are smart people, there are dumb people, they're like, you know, they're human. <laughs> yes. I think it's kind of, kind of perfect. I am probably going to go along with you and give it a 10, but I kind of want to save my piece first. Sure. Rating these movies on a scale of 1 to 10 has always been a bit that isn't a bit, right? That is an essentially impossible task, and it's absurd to try and rate 80 years worth of film on one 1 to 10 scale. But this is the first time it feels like this 10 is fundamentally different from some of the other 10s we've given. And not because this movie is worse than those, but just because it feels like film has kind of transformed a little bit from the 10s we were given in like the mid 30s, where this feels like a much broader crowd-pleasing year 10 than, say, like, Grand Illusion. And I guess that there's a, like, eight of, this movie could be a little tighter, this movie does repeat the same plot bit maybe once or twice too often, that there is some weird stuff in here, and yet at the same time, I don't know if it's an eight or just like, eh, sometimes a ten is messy, sometimes a ten is not, perfect you know in in the sense of structurally perfect not a hair out of place nothing to quibble with which i think some of our tens previously were just like 
don't know, you're going to talk shit about Citizen Kane? What are you going to say? <laughs> yeah, but I would say that this is actually a more engaging movie than Citizen Kane. I, hmm. Again, I think it's, it, it kind of, it has an apples to oranges feeling there. Engaging in what way? Because, like, in some sense, I found Citizen Kane more engaging just because I didn't feel like I knew what was going to happen in Citizen Kane as much. Even though I'd watched it, there was more of a sense of what is the next scene going to bring? Whereas in this one, it's like, how is Dobbs going to be a piece of shit in the next scene? And again, this is all me more explaining why this feels different than other 10s than, like, this gets a 10. It's Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Like, I'm not gonna sit here and go like, actually, people who think this is the best film of all time and it's their favorite film are bad people and are wrong and should feel bad. It's just like, oh, there's kind of a weird 50s Twilight zone vibe to this that feels very different than like, I guess, some of the prestigier big tent poles of film history we've watched. Um... It feels a little, I mean, I guess it makes sense because it's Bogart and it's the same director. It feels more like Maltese Falcon, a little more refined than it feels like Rebecca or Citizen Kane. Yeah, I think I'm starting to have a real affection for genre-y films that sneak in, like, important messages. Yeah. (laughs) Which, to me, this is. This is the, you know... If you transcend greed, what is on the other side is incredible freedom. That's a religious level message. (laughs) Yeah. But it is definitely snuck into what is kind of a Western movie, kind of. Yeah. Like aesthetically a Western anyway, even if it's not structurally a Western. That is what they sold it as. And that is why Jack Warner was constantly sending notes where he was very upset is apparently he did not bother to read the script. And John Houston was just like, yeah, it's about, it's a Western. Three guys go off into the desert and they find gold. (laughs) And like, technically true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not, not true. Yeah, I can understand why that would have made him a little bit upset. (laughs) To be clear, Jack Warner was a piece of shit. And every time you can put one over on Jack Warner, it seems like a great plan. But I understand where he was coming from, even if I don't necessarily agree with him. (laughs) Right. No, like, I am glad the joke was on him, but I do also get where somebody played that joke on me. I would be like, hey, man, come on. This is a lot of money. Um, But also, this movie rules, and it did, in fact, make back its budget, so... So suck it, Jack Warner. Actually, that means that he made his money. Whatever. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, it got nominated for Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, won all of those, did not win Best Picture, though. And I'm real curious about what we're gonna... I mean, God, I... It's just, it's a lot for that Hamlet to live up to, right? Yeah. It's... Yeah. It's... Hamlet can go wrong real quick. And in so many ways. (laughs) Yes. God, you want to talk about something that's shaky structurally. I mean, like... Yeah, really. (laughs) Like, I... Talking a lot of shit about Sierra Madre and literally maybe the greatest work of literature in human history. But like, you always got to cut something in Hamlet because what the hell is this play? Speaking of monologues where you're like, 
Really? Can you just shut up, dude? (laughs) (laughs) We should probably save some of this for next week, though. Yeah, well, we should also probably watch the movie before we criticize it. Right, yeah. But next week, we are watching this Hamlet, which won. So tune in to see if we like it or if it's going to be another one of those where we do a hardcore Shakespeare nerd out about why we hate this. Yeah. I mean, we may do a hardcore Shakespeare nerd out about why we like it, but the the fact that the Wikipedia page has screenplay by Laurence Olivier uncredited makes me incandescently angry. And I'm not sure that, like, that's Laurence Olivier's fault in any way. And I know what the Wikipedia editor or person who first thought of this means by it. But it's like, no, you just mean that he edited the... That's not... He didn't write the screenplay. We don't know. He may have inserted some language into it. We don't know. Maybe. He did, however, direct, produce, and star in it as well. So... Yeah. If he directed, produced, and starred in it, maybe I am really discounting the possibility that he just decided to write some extra Hamlet scenes for his own edification. Just do Hamlet 2, the sequel to Hamlet. Which exists. Yes. Well, there's several different... We have plenty of time next week to talk about Hamlet bullshit. And until then... This was a great fucking movie. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye. This is where for 10 months of suffering and labor, this joke is. Well, Howard, what next, I wonder?